Do you feel beautiful? Do you look beautiful? Does one really affect the other? Welcome to Beauty Inside and Out with host Bonnie Bonadeo. In our show, we'll help you uncover your true self and unleash beauty that you never knew existed in order to be at your best, both inside and out. Now, here is your host, Bonnie Bonadeo. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Beauty Inside and Out show and welcome to the month of June. This is absolutely positively my favorite month for a couple different reasons. One, it is summertime. And although being an, an adult and having summertime doesn't really make a difference anymore, like back in the day when you were a kid and got to take summers off, um, but I still love summertime. And one of the other reasons why I love June is because it's my birthday month. And, as, uh, and for my birthday, I have dedicated all of my shows um, to nonprofit organizations for awareness campaigning, information, education, and of course, donations if you feel compelled to do so. Um, but third, one of the reasons why I love the month of June um, is because it, I see life. I see everything come to life. I, I see the depth, the breadth of, you know, people, humanity, plants, our, our earth, and all of it to me is just beautiful in the month of June. And so I'm dedicating this month and, and all of my shows to my dear friend, Elena K. White, and she was, you, you probably know her if you've listened to my show for any length of time, she was a guest on there several times, um, but she was, she was my advocate, and I hoped that I was an advocate to her in many ways as well, but uh, she passed away a year and a half ago about from ovarian cancer. Um, she started a foundation called Red Thursday, so you can certainly tap into that on Facebook and find out more about it. But she really helped a lot of people that had cancer to feel more connected, more loved, and just a little bit more pampered in the simplest of ways. Um, I miss her very much, but um, I must tell you that my, uh, my guests today are um, two people that I met through Elena and are sharing some amazing, amazing stuff here. Um, but I want to give you a little insight. Before I introduce them completely, I want to give you guys a little insight about some of the shows that we're going to be talking about for June. So we have, next week we have Hair to Stay, and my friend Bethany has a nonprofit organization that actually helps people to be able to receive funding for what is called this cool uh, cap approach when you're going through chemo to be able to keep your hair. Because we know that having our hair is very important. We don't want to, if we're ill, we don't want to look ill. And it makes a big difference just in our environment, our community, our job um, approach to be able to look at our best, even though we might be going through some treatments. So Bethany's going to share with us how you can be involved in Hair to Stay, or you could be a recipient of a Hair, Hair to Stay scholarship um, and find out a little bit more about how this whole process works so that you don't feel as though if you had to have chemo that you're just automatically going to lose your hair. There's some great new technology going on. Uh, as we get into the third week of June, my guest is Selena. She's from Australia and she started a nonprofit organization called Hair Aid. And what she does is she gets volunteers, hairdressers like myself and hundreds others and we she travels them to the streets, to slum communities and underdeveloped communities and she helps them to uh, by teaching them how to cut hair, how to be able to provide a service, how to be able to create income in their community. And she's done this with hundreds of people in underdeveloped areas, um, and they love it, and it's, and it's a lot of fun. So I, I want to support Selena and her hair aid. Um, and then we're going to finish off the month with 
a story of dementia and Alzheimer's, which is greatly affecting my family right now um, as my father's been diagnosed. So we're going to find out a little bit more about how we can be more aware of dementia um, and how we can support not only the dementia patient, but also the caregivers of that particular patient, family and friends that are affected by it as well. But today, I am honored and I'm very happy to have two very special guests with me at this point. And, um, and they're a mom and a son, which makes it even more fun to be able to do this. But my guest is Meredith uh, uh, Mistfire, and she is a clinical psychologist uh, for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And we're going to talk a little bit more about all her juicy details and her great bio and the wonderful things that she does. Um, but what you do need to know at this point is that she is an ovarian cancer survivor. And she's here with her son today, who is Ryan Walton. And he's going to be sharing the story because it's a very interesting story of uh, his initial existence and how he came into this world and the relationship that him and his mother have to this day and how he is being an extreme ambassador to um, the ovarian cancer awareness and how both of them are being completely um, dedicated to the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. So welcome, Meredith and Ryan. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having yeah. us. Yeah, we're so, I'm so excited to have you. Now, we do have our mutual friend, Elena, that is how we met. And unfortunately, we, you know, we didn't have, a, we didn't have a good ending with her. She passed away at 39 years of age from ovarian cancer and obviously complications from all of that. And so all the more reason why I want to make sure that we are spreading the word and making sure that people understand that there is opportunities to be able to get through ovarian cancer because I know that it's kind of capitalized out there and, and, and referenced out there as the silent killer of cancers. And it's usually because the diagnosis comes a little too late. Um, and so it, it kind of gives us some indication that we may not know something might be going on with this. But before we get into some of the details, which we'll do in our second half, what to look for, how to be able to talk with your doctor, signs and symptoms and things like that. Um, I want Ryan to be able to share his involvement and most importantly, his story as to why he's out there being such an advocate to this coalition and supporting his mom, Meredith, in, in the way that he is. So, Ryan, can you give us a little insight? Give us, give us all you got here of <laughs> how you came into existence. Well, thank you. So... I'm a 16-year-old teenage boy talking about ovaries. It's pretty strange, and it's not something you see every day. Um, I'm honored to be here, and I, I communicate with hashtags. So I'll say hashtag move over tumor. It all started when my mom wasn't able to get pregnant for years. Um, finally, they decided to see a fertility specialist, and upon insemination, there was a mass found. She went to see professionals and surgery was recommended immediately. Right before she went into surgery, the thing that probably got her pretty mad is that she had to take a pregnancy test. Mm. And years of not being able to get pregnant, but they needed to check one last time. Hashtag mass confusion. Yup, mass confusion. The words you are pregnant came next. My mom was informed that she would have to abort the baby and continue with the surgery or wait four months gestation. And I like to say, hashtag, she picked me. 
Mm. <laughs> Surgery occurred at four months. I survived, obviously. <laughs> and the mass exploded upon removal. My mom was diagnosed with clear cell epithelial ovarian cancer and pregnant with me. Treatment was required. She opted to wait after delivery. Hashtag tax break. Here I come into the world, New Year's Eve of 2002. I was not planned, but nothing has been, so why start now? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, hashtag from NICU to infusion. My mom began treatment when I was able to breathe and behave on my own. Once I was released from the NICU, after almost a month, I stayed by her side by her side during multiple rounds of chemotherapy. I hear I was the life of the party in there. He was bad. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, my mom. It, listen, it could just be a distraction as well, right? <laughs> I said, he's coming with us no matter what. And she was like, Meredith, it's a you know infusion room. And I'm like, he has to stay by my side. And people quite often ask me, how did you do treatment with a baby? And my response is, how do they do it without one? Um, he was definitely um, part of my lifesaver and, and motivation. Love that. So hashtag choices. Uh, if things weren't bad enough, my biological father made some choices not to stick around. I love my father, but surely this was not his best moment. My grandparents stepped in, took me, my mom, and my dog to Arizona to heal. Some say the desert is magical. I believe it is just what we needed. Hashtag fast forward. My mom finished treatment, returned to PA, finished her doctorate, got divorced, and moved back to the healing powers of Tucson, Arizona. This is the place we call home today. She remarried my stepfather, who has had a big impact on my life, I love him to death. <laughs> He's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom rose from what she refers to as the darkness. Luckily, I was too young to remember this time. Hashtag life lessons. Here's what I do remember. I remember my mom taking me everywhere. To walks, to the infusion room, <laughs> to anywhere she would go, I would be by her side. I would not be the person I am today without her. While she has met, taught me many lessons, I just like to stay on three that I ask others to remember. One, never say I can't. In my house, if I say I can't, it's worse than the cancer card. It's the scar. Shirt up, scar exposed. My mom says, can I, did I ever say I can't have cancer and a baby from, come from her mouth? He loves that part. He no. loves it. <laughs> oh. it really helps when homework gets hard or anything right you no. just be like did, did I say I can't <laughs> and she everyone in my house knows they can or they will die trying never say I can't number two hashtag include us you're not protecting us by your silence tell us your fears and tell us what's wrong we already know when something is wrong. Adults shouldn't hide the cancer diagnosis. Children can pick it up. We know when something is wrong and it doesn't help us. Let us know when something is wrong. Um, I, I lost my grandmother last year uterine cancer and it was 
pretty difficult. And I also lost our dear friend, Elena. This was my true first experience with hospice. Um, it, while difficult at times and a bit traumatizing, I wouldn't have preferred it any differently. It's helped create and shape the person I am today. And since the age of 12, I've been talking to others about ovaries. And my mom calls that an awesome resume builder. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Can I tell you how that really went? I think there were times where the first probably experience I took them on that I thought might have been a little overboard was um, uh, a program called Survivors Teaching Students. It's actually put on by the Ovarian Cancer Research um, Alliance. And uh, uh, we were part of that. And he walked into this medical room of, you know, gynecological students and all the um, tools. And uh, there were a lot of uh, naked mannequins. And, and he went there to listen to stories of ovarian cancer survivors. And I think, I think you were about 12, right? You were doing this school project about being a, a stranger, right? Yeah. In a situation. So I was like, I have a perfect opportunity. And so he was pretty overwhelmed with just being in that room. And then I think it was probably at that, that moment when he listened to three survivors tell their stories. Um, and then me as well, which he of course knew that story was when it, it became real. Like this exists in other people. Uh, one woman talked about being terminal and how she is, she's dying. Um, and he was pretty overwhelmed and probably pretty traumatized from that experience. And I think demanded ice cream after we left there. Like, uh, why did you take me there? But, you know, after a while, the conversations that follow something like that, uh, I could see really gave him a lot of perspective. And then, you know, it was having to tell him that our dear friend Elena was dying um, when she spent many weekends here <laughs> at our house and um, feeding our dog a lot of Cheez-Its until she threw up. Um, but <laughs> Elena was so full of life, right? Was. You know? and, and she lived every single day and she could make anyone gain perspective in a minute. Um, she made everyone feel like they were her best friend. And she just became such a, a big part of our family um, that last year. And telling Ryan that, you know, she was nearing the end while at the same time we were flying back to Pennsylvania for his grandmother's passing, which was really one of his first probably experiences with death um, to uterine cancer, you know, that, that was really difficult. And so we were coming back from that and I told him this was our time to go say goodbye to Elena. And so, you know, from the airport in Phoenix to Goodyear to go say goodbye to Elena, um, it, was, it was overwhelming. And he kind of got to see what hospice was about and how to say goodbye. He didn't have that opportunity with his grandmother. And, you know, it just, it really gave him a lot of perspective um, and me too, about what we, we shield people from and why it's so important to talk to our kids about these things because their developmental level and their thoughts about it are so important to kind of listen to because they don't think like us. Mm -hmm. um, True. So it really opened my eyes to why it was important to talk to him about it. And uh, 
he told me that was probably the hardest thing he's ever had to do. I remember him leaning into bed and, and saying goodbye to her. And um, while he, he said he re didn't want to do it, he was glad afterwards that he had that opportunity. And, and so often I think we shield children from doing that because we want to protect them. And he really needed to, to do that because they were so close. Yeah. So um, including them is important, like Ryan talks about to a lot of people. And, um, and, and even though it's hard, it's important. And I think that's what I've learned from him in all his presentations uh, around the United States is that I'm, I'm glad I did that. And to, for other people to keep doing that, they want to know. And like he said, I always knew when, I always know when something's wrong with you. You know? Yeah. So. And there has to be that, um, you know, that perspective too. Your mother's, your mother's fortunate. She was able to survive this, um, you know, and 16 years has gone by. So this is a beautiful uh, story of survivorship. Um, but I get, I get how hard that could have been for you, Ryan. And I also get how powerful that probably was for you to see that not everybody has the chance to survive this. And, and I, and I think that, certainly that has um, propelled you to commit even more to what you're doing. So will you give us a little insight of what you are doing? Because your mother just mentioned you're out doing presentations and, and you know, what are you doing out there in regards to creating awareness around this? To be honest, I don't remember the first NOCC event I went to because my mom has been taking me since I was in a stroller asleep. But my over the last two years. Over the last two years is when I really started, especially in New York City. I was the opening speaker for the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition um, conference. Conference, yeah. And I, that was my first time ever speaking to a larger um, group, and I got a standing ovation, and it's something that I'll never forget. <laughs> Yeah, that feels good, doesn't it? Yeah. 500 women and physicians applauding and quoting your son throughout the rest of the weekend using his hashtags was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, and I, and I love that you communicated it from your perspective um, and your knowledge and your awareness. Um, and I think that it's a, it's, it, I have a feeling, Ryan, you're going to probably continue on this path and journey for a long time, huh? Yes. My, off of that, my mom always tells me that connection is key. Now, mm -hmm. Bonnie, if you have Instagram, you better follow me. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> oh, I already did. I just did this before. Yeah. Okay. But, but tell us what your Instagram is so we can have all our listeners follow you too. <laughs> it's rhino underscore 31, R-Y-E-N-O underscore 31. R-Y-E-N-O underscore three one. So everybody follow Ryan. <laughs> Perfect. But I don't believe that was the connection I was referring to. But <laughs> no, but that's okay. <laughs> off of that, the connections I got, Tesaro offered me and asked me to come to their headquarters in Boston to open out their events for September, which is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. And going there, getting a tour of their headquarters, I mean, that's a place I want to work. It was amazing. <laughs> oh, very cool. But to all the doctors and researchers that I spoke to, it just, to see what they do from a different perspective, it, it really sheds light to how, 
how awareness is key. Awareness is key. And, and Ryan, help me out with this because I, I, I want, based on everything you've done to this point, the people you've met, the observations that you've witnessed and the doctors who are trying hard, I just, I mean, I hear a lot of people out there that, that they believe that, you know, we're keeping cancer going because it's, it's profitable and mm. not looking for a cure and not trying to, you know, really resolve some of the things that we're up against. Give us your insight on that because you're 16 now, right? Yes. This is the, this is the real opinion I want to hear. <laughs> I, I don't know if they're hiding it, but it's anyone that has experienced cancer firsthand, you know that they, anything to slow this or stop it is being taken. Yeah. It is one of the hardest things for someone to endure, especially the ones who have to go through it, the ones who are being diagnosed, the ones that are, are fighting this, these deadly diseases. And it, it's not something that people can just take profitable because it's, it affects too many and mm -hmm. it's too hard to take that way. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Thank you. Thank you. Now, tell us a little bit about what you're up to right now. So you're still in high school. <laughs> yes, still in high school. Just got done with my sophomore year. Going to become a junior. Yes. I, 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 yeah, I, <laughs> I love high school. And the, within the past two months, was it Hawaii? Oh, yes, recently. Two months ago, I was nominated, nominated for the Ovarian Cancer Hero Award by Cure mm -hmm. Magazine. And the nom when I heard I was nominated for such a, an award that was just for something that I love doing and something that I never thought that for someone to nominate me, it kind of showed like it, it really meant a lot because someone thought that what I do meant so much that I'm worth this award mm. and to get the call that I ended up winning the award, flying to Hawaii <laughs> and get, this is my first time going to Hawaii. <laughs> so I was, I was so hyper. I was ecstatic and it was something I surely will never forget. And I thank the nominator Cure Magazine, everyone, because it's for something that I love doing. And I never thought that I would, one win it and for someone to think that I'm worthy of it just meant so much. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that, Ryan. I mean, you're, you're going to bring me to tears before this show is over. <laughs> I, swear, I, I mean, I'm so emotional right now with all that you've accomplished and all that you're continuing to want to be a part of. And you're, you know, I know you've been at it your whole life, but um, you're making some pretty good headway right now. And I think the perspective is very powerful. Yeah. So, all right. So you're going to graduate from high school. What's next for you after that? You've got some plans. <laughs> hey, I know you slow do. Slow down there, Bonnie. <laughs> um, I, I want to do something with cancer research or I want to go to college. And as of now, <laughs> I really don't know what I want to do, but the biomedical engineering 
is actually it is something I'm very interested in. I mm-hmm. love biology. I love the sciences. I love math. But don't ask me to spell something because I'm not the best at that. <laughs> hey, we all have a little bit of our own little faults, right? <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Yes, but I would like to go to college and do something more towards the science side of cancer research just to do my part to see if anything can progress with slowing cancer down. Oh, and as you, know, as you know, Bonnie, there is no screening tool yet for ovarian cancer. Um, and that's so past, frustrating. That's so yes, frustrating that it's still there. Does not detect ovarian cancer. And this is often quite the myth that people think, you know, I got my uh, pap smear done, everything came back fine, I'm good to go. And, and a pap smear has nothing to do with, with ovarian cancer. So we have yet to, to find a screening tool. And so, you know, I would be okay if, if Ryan would develop that. Yeah, I, I, I think we'd all be okay, <laughs> Ryan, with that. So not to put any pressure on you. No, at pressure. Yeah, no pressure. No pressure. And, you know, and listen, we don't want to wait for you to graduate college for this to come about. We need you to start putting your thinking <laughs> now, right? Yeah, that's great. Well, you've got, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if this is a good choice, but you have that beautiful college, University of Arizona right there, that's got a pretty good program in that arena. Definitely. It is one of the best biomedical engineering programs in the nation. And in-state tuition, I mean, that's great for me. <laughs> and it's great for mom. Yeah. For sure. yes. You're not partial to the U of A, are you, Bonnie? I am not partial at all. No. Bear down, go, go Wildcats, <laughs> all that. Yeah, so you had the opportunity to meet my son when he was down there, um, uh, and so he just finished his second year of college. He's going into his third year now, and he got accepted into the Eller Business uh, Management School for an MIS program. So what we're going to do, Ryan, is we're going to get him under the MIS. We're going to start creating some development. You're going to go into the bioengineering. We're going to put you two together, and you guys are going to come up with some solutions here. Okay. Add in all yep. this public speaking, and, you know, we'll have something there. Oh, yeah, we should absolutely. be able to live pretty comfortably, Bonnie, after that. <laughs> I, I, I think so. I think I, I, feel, I feel already I'm being taken care of here. <laughs> well, I think that's fantastic. Ryan, I just, I just really want to acknowledge you for all that you've accomplished and all that you're continuing to do. And um, keep doing it, you know, Thank keep you. doing it. Because, you know, I know that they're all, you're like a, are you still a Gen Z? Would you consider yourself a Gen Z? Yes, I am. Okay, you're a Gen Z. Yeah, because, you know, you know how we talk about millennials, right? Oh, I, no, oh we're I am not a millennial. That's right, we trash millennials as sad as it is. So <laughs> I just want everyone to know that Gen Z is taking on the, you know, taking on that <laughs> leadership role here and, uh, and is going to, certainly going to change things. So we got a couple more minutes before we get to a break. So Meredith, can you just share with us then a little bit? Because I, I know that you're a part of this national ovarian cancer coalition and that you've been involved with it for many years and everything. And I certainly want to touch on that when we get into our second segment, but tell us a little bit about what you're up to um, with this organization and how, what we need to know about it. Yeah. uh, So how I got involved in NOCC originally was some, some friends of mine wanted to kind of get me out of the darkness and um, they say kind of sharing your story helps. And, uh, I have to say, I probably wasn't believing them at the time, but went to one of my first run walks 
um, in Philadelphia uh, when Ryan was just in a stroller and kind of got to bear witness to other women's stories and see that um, I was not alone. And I, I definitely can say that I felt very isolated um, or isolated myself, uh, thinking that that's how I needed to take care of me and, and my son. So uh, that was kind of my first um, eye-opening experience and got myself through treatment, got myself through my doctorate program, a divorce, just a lot of really crazy life changes. Um, chemotherapy, of course, just took quite the toll and having a newborn and uh, moved myself back here and decided when I was healthy, um, I would give back in some way. Uh, Many women almost, um, gosh, I want to say 20% or less, I believe, of ovarian cancer diagnosis um, are in early stages. And I was fortunate that mine was early staged. So what we see most often is that most women are diagnosed in stage three or four. And that's definitely limits different, different options or mm -hmm. makes it you know, more strategic and, and definitely you need to be more aggressive um, in, in battling that. So I, I knew I wanted to give back in some way. So I started volunteering myself for the organization, um, found a local one here in Tucson and kind of then started getting really involved, took over the chapter, the local chapter as a chapter manager, a volunteer position and just wanted to get more women together so that they too did not need to feel alone as I did. And uh, from there, I uh, was asked to uh, become a member of the board of directors. And I served on that for about a year and a half, and then was asked to be the chair. So I'm the first chair of the board of directors as a survivor. We have other survivors on the board of directors. And I'm just I'm honored to see where this organization is going. Um, what we are doing for women, what we are doing for families affected with ovarian cancer, um, participating in research, and most of all, quality of life events, um, so that women don't need to feel alone. They can share their stories, and they can feel support in their local communities. Wow. And, and I want to just kind of like remind people here that what Meredith just said is that, you know, they don't usually get diagnosed at an early stage of this. It's usually three or four, which changes the whole dynamics of the type of treatments they can do, the longevity that they may have in front of them. Um, and here you are, a chair, a cancer survivor, ovarian cancer survivor, and the chair of this organization. So that, that really says a lot. That says that we're making progress. It says that you're making progress. Well, I'm, I'm definitely very grateful to be here, and I, I have witnessed and bared witness to losing too many friends um, and to seeing it being diagnosed in females of all ages. And again, I think it's such a myth that this is an older woman disease. And 16 years ago, Bonnie, I, I sat in a chemotherapy room as the youngest person there at 30, and yeah. now we hear of... Uh, there's a variety of different types of ovarian cancer and you know, we're seeing it in young as two and a half years old. Um, oh my goodness. Six years old, 16 years old, young adult women. Um, and so I know we're going to talk a little bit in the next um, uh, section, you know, just about what we can do as women and as advocates of our own bodies.
Well, perfect. That was a great segue for me for us to be able to take a break at this point in time. So you guys don't go anywhere. Please join us for this second segment because this is the part where we really want to make sure that you understand how to, how, how to be able to be more aware of it, how to make sure that you're asking the right questions when you're with doctors and, and you know, what you need to know. And Meredith and Ryan both are going to be uh, great advocates of being able to share that information with us. So they're part of the National, Organiz- uh, the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. Um, so, and what's the website for that? So we can pop on that while we're on a break. Absolutely. It's www.ovarian.org. Ovarian.org. That's easy. Perfect. All right. You guys, we're going to take a quick audio break right now, but we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you looking to uncover your authentic self? Looking to improve your communication, selling, or public speaking skills? Discover Naked Audience Productions trainings on public speaking, leadership, sales, and healing. Mastering the art of authentic communications can change your life in many ways. From promotions to profits to enhancing any relationship, whether it's business or personal, finding and speaking your naked truth is a beautiful thing. Visit www.napevents.com. Or call 877-319-2403. That's napevents.com or 877-319-2403. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Beauty Inside and Out with Bonnie Bonadeo. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to bonnie at bonniebonadeo.com. That's bonnie at bonniebonadeo.com. Now back to Beauty Inside and Out. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Beauty Inside and Out. All right, so I had to go wipe my eyes and uh, probably touch up my makeup because the two guests that I have on right now have been fantastic and um, certainly adding to my emotion today of everything that they're accomplishing, everything they're doing, and everything they've been faced with. So Ryan Walton is 16 years old. His mother was diagnosed, Meredith, with ovarian cancer while she was pregnant with him. So he has lived an entire lifetime of uh, having known that his mother was sick during this time and then also supporting her and and the uh the the information that she's been working with in the coalition organization ever since then he's since been involved in it so you heard his story in the first segment if you missed it go back and do a replay on this absolutely you have to hear this but meredith so you got diagnosed 16 years ago now currently you're working as a licensed clinical psychologist for the federal bureau of prison so this sounds like a pretty intense job to begin with, but you're also the chair of the, the, the coalition, the Ovarian Cancer Coalition um, at this point. And you're the first surviving cancer person as chair of this organization. So that gives, that gives us a lot of hope right there. Um, and you previously worked for the Department of Corrections on Death Row and Special Management Units. Now, 
you're a clinical psychologist, you're already doing an enormous amount of stuff. How did you manage just getting through your own diagnosis and your own treatments and then having a newborn? Like, share a little bit about that with us. And then we want to go into the details of what we need to look for for an awareness part. Um, if I'm being honest, I think I was a terrible psychologist for myself, but most of us are. <laughs> and uh, when I was going through this whole experience um, and feeling somewhat isolated and definitely probably the darkest time of my life, um, my parents, my mother, um, she kind of forced me into like a, a treatment um, retreat. I guess that's what we call it, a retreat. So it wasn't so much a support group. Um, and, you know, being in a, a forensic correctional psychology world, I, I don't focus as much as in treatment as I do perhaps maybe evaluation. So um, I wasn't very keen on the idea. I kind of felt like I could take care of myself. I didn't know anyone. I was making a lot of irrational beliefs. But um, it was probably the first stepping stone to my healing. And I think a big part of that was being uh, surrounded by other women who were battling some type of cancer and, you know, just um, being able to share my story and the place in which I was at at that time. Yeah. So uh, that was kind of the stepping stone. H how did I balance it all? I don't, I don't really know. I think you just, <laughs> as women, as survivors, as anything, we just kind of, we don't know what we're capable of until we're put in that circumstance. So That's true. Now, I, you were going in there for, what were you going to the doctor for, for that they ran the test? Was it fertility? Well, first, there is no test for ovarian, but I was, yeah, we, my um, ex-husband and I were going through um, infertility um, treatment. Uh, we were going through the process and we were about to go have try insemination. And, you know, after three years of not being able to get pregnant, and here it is the day that you're going to um, try to make a baby in this most unnatural way possible <laughs> yes. that you never think of, um, they informed me that there was an unknown mass and that it was really nothing to worry about, but I would need to have it looked at before insemination could um, before we could attempt that procedure. Was that through like an ultrasound or something like that that they did? Yeah, so I had an ultrasound right before they were going to do the insemination because that's ultrasound guided. And uh, ironically, even though I felt like everyone was looking at me every other week, here was this unknown mass. And, and I had had gynecological history starting at the age of 19, um, which they deemed endometriosis. Mm -hmm. I would have um, a lot of pain, always felt bloated, couldn't wear tight things around my waist. I often wonder if maybe I had this disease at that age. Um, because I met all of the, the criteria or the symptoms of what we know. And so I had some laparoscopic surgeries. So I felt like my gynecological history was just repeating itself. And so I really wasn't worried about this mass. Um, I've had ovarian cysts before. I've been hospitalized. So I was just kind of taking it in. We went to a gynecological oncologist for a consult. They told me a 5% chance of cancer. So therefore, I don't do percentages anymore. <laughs> um, and I, um, I was told that, you know, I would either have to have the surgery or, or just wait four months gestation. So I, I waited, of course, plus I didn't know, uh, I didn't know if I would 
oh, I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping myself. I, I decided to wait a month to see if the mask would go away. And so we decided to postpone surgery for a month because I, I didn't know I was pregnant yet. And um, it must have been in that month that I became naturally pregnant, go figure. Right. Um, my grandmother always stresses to me, I told you when you finally relaxed, mm -hmm. um, this would happen. You would get pregnant. And I'm thinking there was nothing relaxing about this past month. I was facing an unknown mask. We couldn't get pregnant for three years. And now they're telling me you have a mask and you're pregnant. What do you want to do? So that's when I decided I would wait four months. And, you know, this was not a, a, a pro-life, pro-choice. This was, I did not believe I would ever have the opportunity again to have a child. Yeah. And so I wanted to protect that at all costs, no matter what. And I don't know if that is the... The preferred decision at that time, 16 years ago, but it, it was my decision, and um, I, and I needed to do what I felt was best. And we did get a second opinion at John Hopkins, um, and I I just opted to wait. And I didn't even know if the fetus would survive at four months when they removed the mask. So it was just a lot of risk taking, but it was it was my choice. And so um, they they did remove it while you were pregnant. Yes. But so, you didn't treat the cancer until after Ryan was a month old or so. Yes. Yeah, so I started treatment approximately six weeks after Ryan was born. Um, there wasn't enough research at that time to tell me 16 years ago, we've come a long way, mm -hmm. um, if chemotherapy would harm the fetus at all. And so, yeah, I had to wait. Um, I chose to wait. And, but I now will tell you that I have met other women who have been pregnant with ovarian cancer, who have done treatment during o their ovarian cancer and their pregnancy, and um, their, their children have been fine. So it's nice to see how we've come along yeah. um, in some of our, our methods of, of treating this disease and being able to treat it quickly. Yeah, awesome. So, all right, so you talked about a couple symptoms here that you had had that they kind of treated as endometriosis, which you, which you probably did have, right? But there were all these other signs that they were probably saying, you're too young, it's not cancer, it's certainly not ovarian cancer, like all these reasons for them to not dive into that a little bit deeper, which is what we're hearing from women, even into their 40s and 50s, that they're going and making these claims of what they're not, why they're not feeling well, why something seems to be off from them, and they're still not going down the path because you said that there's no marker for it. So first, let's go through what do we need to know? What are some symptoms that we need to be aware of? Well, they call it the disease that whispers because the symptoms are vague. And as women, we experience them typically every month for those mm -hmm. that are, are having their period, menstruating. So feeling the need to urinate frequently or urgently um, is one of the symptoms. Pelvic or abdominal pain is another symptom. Uh, feeling bloated uh, is another symptom. And finally, trouble eating or fooling, feeling full quickly. So when you think about these symptoms, right, what woman has not had these symptoms and brushed it off as this is my time of the month? I don't Absolutely. Think worry. So I think what's really important is when these symptoms persist um, for three weeks or more and you're not finding relief, that you need to go to your doctor. And 
you know, there's a variety of different things available on the website. One of the ones that I've liked uh, is the Dr. Oz's checklist where, you know, here are the symptoms. Instead of telling me why it wouldn't be ovarian cancer, tell me why it's not, right? Mm. I want to be checked. I want to be screened. And while there is no screening test, I just think it's more about advocating for your body, advocating for the symptoms. We hear a lot of women that get misdiagnosed with gastrointestinal issues, irritable bowel syndrome, endometriosis. Um, and, and I'm not here to scare any women. Like if you have ovarian cysts, I'm not saying that you have ovarian cancer. I'm just saying know your body. And if you're not feeling, you know, I was just led to believe that it was almost all in my head. I just had to deal with this uncomfortableness. But something I remember from a young age, you know, who doesn't at 19 want to wear jeans? And I could never wear jeans. I did not like anything tight around my waist. There was never a pair of pants that I could feel that was comfortable. Um, I wasn't overweight. I wasn't, you know, it was just constantly, I didn't want anything tight around my waist. And I did always feel bloated, not just prior to my periods, but all the time. And so I think if your symptoms persist, you need to go talk to your doctor. And if you don't feel that your doctor is actively listening to you, then you, you might have to go get another opinion and be okay with doing that. So um, I, I think that's the biggest key because there is no test, there is no tool. So we are, we, our voices are the only thing we have. Yeah. And so if you have these symptoms, I would definitely encourage you to speak to your doctor about it. And so in speaking to the doctor about it, Meredith, and Ryan, I just want to acknowledge you again. We're talking about ovaries and and menstruating and all this stuff, and you're being such a trooper, so thank you. Um, <laughs> gotten him out of a lot of classes. He's good with it. He I bet. The word I bet. And his coaches are like, go, go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go and come back and educate us, right? Um, so how does someone then go to the doctor and, and be persistent with that conversation of saying, you know, it's not just my period, um, it's, it, it feels different than that. I mean, what are they going to then suggest to do to be able to look deeper? Well, I think there's a variety of things that they can do to start, you know, making sure that perhaps some ultrasounds, MRI, CAT scan, making sure there's, you know, nothing there. Unfortunately, sometimes we can't pick it up in all of those tests, but we can see if anything, or we, I'm not a physician, they can see if anything looks abnormal. Um, and maybe just further monitoring, tracking, logging, you know, seeing if the symptoms dissipate um, after you eat, before you eat. So just kind of more tracking, monitoring, and definitely uh, feeling like you're being heard. Yeah, I think the feeling like you're being heard is really critical for this and important for women to not just pass it off. If they, because you're right, we do know our bodies. So we know what that normal monthly cycle feels like. And then if it starts to feel a little different, we should question that. We should start paying attention. What other symptoms and signs do we have going on? Um, be very diligent with your doctor in saying, no, I want further testing done. Is that yeah. what you'd recommend? Yeah, absolutely. Further monitoring. Um, you know, there are some blood tests that just kind of are like tumor trackers, CA-125 just to take as baselines to see if over time it changes. It's not an indicator of ovarian cancer, but it's definitely a, a, a good tool to have like a baseline uh, scale, a baseline um, result so that you can compare it maybe later on to see if there's any dramatic changes. Um, 
typically anything like 35 and under as a CA-125 blood test, uh, it would be considered normal. So if somebody goes and gets a baseline of 12 and then, you know, their symptoms keep persisting and then that is like 500, that might be caused then for maybe something more exploratory. Unfortunately, and that's a that's blood test. Way. Yeah, that's a blood test. Okay. But it's, it's, it's not something that can diagnose you with ovarian, but it might be a another tool to use for monitoring to say, okay, maybe we do need to go inside and take a look. Yeah, and being able to, to be okay with that. Now, would there be any other signs, like if your period was starting to become irregular, um, bleeding more or bleeding less, or any of those type of symptoms, those would be abnormal as well. Absolutely. Anything that's, that's not of norm, you should definitely advocate for yourself and, and talk to your physician. I mean, one in 75 women will be diagnosed with ovarian cancer each year. Um, 22,000 are diagnosed and approximately 14,000 will die from this disease. So if you do the numbers, that's over half. Again, more women are being diagnosed in late stages. Uh, there is definitely an increase, increase in survival rate if we can um, find this disease in its earlier progression, earlier stages, um, which is so critical uh, you know, for all women, for anyone with ovaries. Um, I don't even want like to say women sometimes because then that's misleading that it only happens in women. Pri primarily it's in women. Um, older women, but I don't think we should pass off these symptoms. So when you're, if you have a teenager talking about abnormal periods and a lot of pain and discomfort, I just don't think we can overlook that anymore. I have no history of gynecological problems in my family um, at the time of my diagnosis. So everything I was asked still, I was kind of like, no, I wasn't fitting all the checks in the boxes, right? And so what yeah. I encourage physicians and advocates to kind of share is look outside of those boxes. Sometimes you just need to listen to your patient, right? You need to listen to what they're experiencing and track it, monitor it over time. Um, and for the patients, the people that are feeling these symptoms, be truthful, be honest, be diligent about why it's different than how you normally have felt. Because, you know, if you look at an average age of when we start to menstruate and then at that point when we start to see something different, we have, there is, we have to have the answers in between that. This is what it's always been like. This is what it's like now. And it right. could be related or it could not be related, but either way, I'd like to do some, you know, further testing on it. So you're saying that, that unfortunately the, the survival rate is 50%. So that means the death rate is 50% of this. Is it just because the cancer is spreading because it's not being diagnosed in a timely fashion and it's spreading Typically, when you look at stage three or four, the cancer is already metastasized. Okay. So it's it spread to lymph nodes, um, and so it, that's therefore harder to treat um, or, or make sure that we capture and, and kill all the, the cells that have been affected. So, again, I'm not a physician. Um, I'm a psychologist, but I, you know, from what I have gathered through much research and diligence, uh, you know, that's kind of what makes this more complicated. Plus, there is, you know, no one typical, from my point of view, ovarian cancer. So many people have their, you know, own unique story as well as their own unique type. And, you know, if you or I needed blood pressure medication, um, typically one of the many blood pressure medications is going to help reduce our blood pressure. Unfortunately, not all people react um, 
or, you know, result the same from the treatments that are available for ovarian. So the cells are just so differentiated. There's just so much variety in the disease. That's what makes it harder to diagnose and harder to treat. Mm -hmm. um, it's just not one path that we can take. Um, and, and so that, therefore, research is so critical. Right. So at that point, if you're being diagnosed and you're in a stage three or four, of course, they're going in and removing any tumors or any mass or the ovaries themselves. They're probably doing all of that. But at that point, it could have spread and um, now you're dealing with treating not just ovarian cancer, but you're treating other approaches to cancer that's spread. You're, you're treating other places the cancer has lingered on to. You know, when yeah. I was first diagnosed, they, they took my appendix right away because typically my type of ovarian would go there next. So that was kind of a preventative measure um, just to remove the appendix because my, my mass erupted. Um, he was taking up too much room, I think. They were trying to take the tumor out at the same way. He was a big preemie. I'm just going to say he was eight, too. Five weeks. Yeah, early. yeah, a month early and, yeah, yeah big preemie. <laughs> big preemie. But um, when that ruptured and all, all of the cells fell back in, you know, we don't know where they were going to attach to. And of course, microscopic, um. you can't see anything. So my physician then took the appendix right away um, to be preventative. Now, I, that doesn't mean everybody with ovarian cancer should have their appendix removed. I'm not saying that, but I, I do think that- It was your you know, story. Yeah, that was mine. And that's what makes this disease, it, it's so progressive, it can be aggressive, and you know, everyone's is different. So we just need more research, we need more treatment options, we need more screening tools. Um, we're considered like one of those orphan cancers that just doesn't get enough attention. If you think about October and everywhere is pink, um, that's great. I'm not against October. I'm not against pink. I think awareness is key. I just want us to get teal out there, right? Teal is the color of ovarian cancer. And we need to make people more aware of the symptoms because they're so silent so that women can be better advocates, awareness can be raised, and people hopefully can be diagnosed in earlier stages if they have to be diagnosed. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, and my apologies, too, because I know you're a doctor, and I've been kind of just talking to you like Meredith instead of saying, Dr. Misfire, uh, <laughs> I hope you're okay that I've been keeping it kind of informal with you. And No, no, please do. As my brother says, I'm not a real doctor. He is. <laughs> He's a physician. I'm just a psychologist. So right, not a real doctor. Yeah, perfect. Well, you've, you've shared so much information here, and there's, and, and I know each of these women have a different story. I mean, Elena's story was they did, they did not diagnose it in time, yet she fought. She fought because she knew something was wrong with her for a very long time, and she had to be, probably, she had to be someone she was typically not. You know, she had to go outside of herself to really start saying, I need you to do things. I need you to listen to me. I need you to hear me. Um, and then they started taking her seriously because they just, you know, they really chalked it up. She passed at 39 and she had it already for five years. So they really just passed her off as you're too young to even consider having that kind of cancer. And that, we all know that that is right there is a myth number one, that there's no age discrimination to cancer. No. Nope. Um, that and she was young and vibrant and 
you know, she was passionate about life. And so I'm sure I can just see her presenting her symptoms in the physician's office and the physician being like, you're, you're going to be okay. Maybe you're, you know, over-exaggerating or, and, and that's so true. And, and she was just so determined, but she, she had to be her own advocate throughout this whole process. And nothing is more disheartening than seeing a woman fighting for her life. And then having to fight with insurance companies, having to fight with getting different treatments considered or paid for. I mean, people don't even understand what survivors have to go through in order to just get the treatments that may be out there. I have a very dear friend. Her name is Kristen Larson, and, and Elena knew her as well. She's in Australia. And... You know, she is her own advocate, constantly advocating every day for her, her life and her health, diagnosed at 21, I believe wow. she's 26 or 27 right now, um, with late stage ovarian cancer, and just trying to seek as much education as possible. She comes to the United States, she travels around the war world, she is trying to seek as much education as she can to, to save herself. Mm -hmm. And then she's battling waiting for clinical trials or being approved or having insurance pay for things. And, you know, I think I remember her stating recently, it's bad enough you have to fight cancer, but, you know, you also have to pay for it, right? You have to find ways to afford saving your life. And we just don't have enough advocacy out there for, for ovarian and, um, and too many people are dying. Oh, gosh, that's so sorry. I'm so sorry to hear that about your friend, because that is. But, you know, we'll continue to keep cheering her on Absolutely. and supporting her in any way we can. Now, tell us a little bit about what we need to know about the organization and how can we be more involved in this? Sure. Um, so the National Ovarian Cancer uh, Coalition, it's a grassroots organization, and it focuses on, on four pillars. One is, of course, raising money for research. Um, that is where some of the, what we do as a nonprofit, we have run walks, um, teal teas, uh, teal teenies, uh, different events to not only raise awareness, but raise funds because research is critical. Um, we also focus on earlier awareness, so providing educational materials. Should you want educational materials, want to sponsor your own ovarian event online and pass out symptom cards. As we know, that's the only tool we have right now. So the NOCC is dedicated to earlier awareness and education. Um, and you can get these materials online at uh, ovarian.org. Um, we focus on community events to raise awareness. So we have local chapters um, around uh, the United States where we uh, focus events on bringing survivors together. Um, quality of life is another pillar where we hope to kind of provide support. Uh, Ryan's been involved in a lot of teal teas, both here in Tucson and in Dallas, run walks um, uh, across you know, the United States. We'll be going to Philadelphia, New York, Dallas. Uh, we always go to the Tucson and Phoenix walks um, just to kind of raise awareness, but also to provide uh, a time where survivors or families affected or those that have lost a loved one to this disease, um, uh, an opportunity to kind of connect, right? As Ryan mm -hmm. would say, connect and lean on each other and be able to share these most vulnerable moments uh, through uh, the teal journey uh, with other people. So the NOCC is all about 
doing that and getting people together, getting awareness out, supporting research. Um, so if you want more information, they're also a great resource center. Um, we have this great uh, Cancer Connect, um, which helps other survivors and caregivers connect with each other. I want to get the, I think it's that's N called nocccommunity.ovarian.org. Um, we'll also provide webinars, information sites, how to deal with the diagnosis, how to be a caregiver, um, things that caregivers go through. So we try to support everyone involved in the diagnosis somehow, some way. Yeah, that's beautiful, beautiful. So ovarian, uh, www.ovarian.org, right? Yes, for Earth. the NOCC. And find um, perhaps a local chapter in your community yeah. uh, where people can connect. Or if you're interested in creating a chapter um, or being a TEAL ambassador, they have materials and a packet to kind of help you get started in your area if you are a survivor, loved one, or caregiver. So September is, uh, is the awareness month. Teal's the color. Um, so, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a challenge out to all of my beauty industry friends and salon owners that uh, maybe what we can do is we can get some, we can start sharing it. We can get some materials together and we can have it in the salons. I mean, here we are, we're servicing all these women um, in our salons every day. This might be the opportunity to get some of this literature and materials and have it available in your salon so that at least we can start spreading the word because it's all about awareness and having a bigger voice in this particular cancer so that we can get the funds um, and support more people of surviving it instead of not surviving it at this point. Yeah. I'd like to give a shout out. I know Purology is a, a beauty product that definitely has supported NOCC. Put our ribbon on some of their products in the month of September as well as um, displays with getting awareness out. So look for that as well. Oh, that's beautiful. And I love our friends at Purology, of course. Yep, that's one of, <laughs> one of, one of my favorite lines as well. Thank you, guys. You've been amazing. Ryan, I just want, what I'm telling you, I want to follow you. I want to see what you're about. <laughs> I am encouraging all of you guys to follow Ryan as well. Give us your Instagram account one more time, your handle. <laughs> yes, it's R-Y-E-N-O underscore 31. Okay, R-I-E-N-O, like yes. Rhino. Yes. Underscore He's on 31. Snapchat too. I yeah. Oh, and, and yes, of course, for all, all the young folks that have Snapchat, you can find him on there. Um, and do, do follow him. Do, you know, make him a priority of being able to help him in, in, you know, having this next generation make an impact on this cancer and this disease that is not getting any easier for anybody else. So, Meredith, your story is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing it, Ryan. Thank you for sharing it through your eyes as well. Um, that was really great, you guys. So go to ovarian.org. Get some information, find out more, support those people that might be having it. If you have friends or family members that are complaining about the symptoms that Meredith talked about, encourage them to go see their doctor right away and, um, and see if we can't be more preventative in it all. I thank you guys. Thank yeah. you. So I'm you guys, so glad Elena connected us. Oh, I know. I'm so glad that Elena, I can feel her presence still right here. Yeah. You know, I'm, again, I'm dedicating the entire month of June to nonprofit organizations, so I hope you guys will stay tuned and listen to all the shows that we're bringing forth this month um, because we need to know. And in just as being a beauty professional, we have a lot of ways to be able to make those connections with other people and share it. So I encourage all my um, beauty industry friends to be able to continue to keep sharing and caring all the things that are important here. And remember, you guys, to always be you in beauty. Thanks for joining me. 
Thank you for listening to Beauty Inside and Out. Please join your host, Bonnie Bonadeo, again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a great week.